All right, you can open up to John chapter 8. John 8. I'm going to read just a few um, verses. It's a big chapter, but we're going to read, just kind of skip through, so you can just follow along with me there. All right, John 8, look at verse 12, and then we'll skip down. Yeah, that's the one. John 8, verse 12, these are the words of God. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Skip down to verse 25. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Verse 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now verse 43. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And now the end, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you, have, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Our Father and righteous God, we come now to hear the ethics of your law word. This means that in our consideration of what your word has to say, we confess that we need your Spirit's help. May he open our eyes and open our hearts as we open up this very word that he inspired. Lord Jesus, we glorify you and we pray, Father, in the name of your Son. Amen. So we're back in our study of the Gospel of John, thankfully, and uh, we come now to the rest of of chapter 8. Note that at the very beginning of the chapter, the first 11 verses, um, the religious leaders were looking to stone the woman who was caught in adultery, and then that was two weeks ago. And then at the end of this chapter, we have a same predicament, but now Jesus himself is at the receiving end of their um, tyranny, we'll call it, where they want to stone Jesus. Now, as we talked about last time, Jesus has come to Jerusalem preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Uh, He's imploring this judgment-bound wayward nation to repent and believe to repent and be healed, to, be, to repent and amend their ways and be forgiven um, for their transgressions. His preaching and teaching came with heavenly um, authentication, we'll call it, symbol, symbolized in things like the miracles, uh, the miraculous acts of healing, his um, calming of the storm when he walked on the water. You remember the scene with the disciples we covered already. He has fed, at this point, thousands of people. He's restored life to those who have faced death. In short, Jesus is demonstrating and giving testimony to the power of his glorious kingdom. 
We like to talk about Jesus Christ's kingdom, uh, and, and we love the, the, to get, dig, dig into that whole concept. But we need to remember that part of his kingdom work, all of that centered on the revelation of his glorious kingdom. He was, in fact, ushering in a new age. He was, in fact, bringing his kingdom. But this, of course, was not without pushback either. Um, the consternation of the religious leaders is pretty much well established up until this point. They have witnessed the teaching and the miracles, that have, and they've basically gone out of their way to discredit this young prophet from Galilee. The temperature, in other words, has reached boiling point with them. They have quite literally had it up to here. The temple was found leprous and disheveled. The leaders were found incompetent and endurate. The nation had fallen into disrepute, and unless they repent, they will perish. That's the message. So here again, we have this conversational volley between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, they want to know things about him. They want to know his origin. Um, they want to know all about his authority. They have questions. They need answers, and they go and they put the pressure on. They want to know his identity. In verse 25, who are you? Who are you? Now, in their minds, they want to drill down deep in order to poke holes in Jesus' theology. They are looking to poke holes in his theology. He has a, he has a worldview. He has uh, a whole lot of things he's presented, and they're trying to, just, they're, they're trying to poke holes in it. They, they have things to prove. And if they can accomplish that, if they can trick them, which is essentially last time, um, the whole reason for the woman caught in adultery scenario was they were trying to trap him. They tried to trap him with the taxation question with Caesar. They tried to trap him on multiple fronts. And the woman called in adultery was no less of an incident. They wanted to, to get him either to rebel against God's law, and thus you know, the people will hate him, or they're gonna, he's going to rebel against Rome and take matters into his own hands, which he was lawfully not able to do at this point. So the passage here, we're, we're going to break it down really into two sections. If you look at your text, you'll see the chunk, verses 12 through 30. We basically have this interrogation of Jesus. Who is this man? Where does he come from? Is his testimony valid? We need to figure out what's going on here. It's sort of a court, a trial, if you will. And then you have verses 31 through 59, the end of, this, end of the chapter, where you have the issue of identity being sorted out. Who is Jesus? Who are they? Who, who rightly belongs to Abraham? That's the question. Is it Jesus or is it the leaders? Is it Jesus or Jerusalem? Who, who belongs to Abraham? That's the question. What binds the entire discussion together are basically the concepts of authority and the concept of identity. Those two things sort of collide here. What is authority? Who has it? Who says, you know, why does Jesus have it and they don't? Um, who, who is Jesus and who are we? Those are the questions on the table. In verse 12, and we'll just kind of quickly make our way through, making a few points as we go. Jesus makes it plain. He says, I'm light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By declaring himself to be the light of the world, basically now there's an invitation for examination. He made a bold claim. He makes the claim now they're going to examine him. And all that's now set in motion. This, this trial, you know, kangaroo court um, goes all the way through the, to Jesus' death, essentially. So according to the leaders, they're not satisfied with Jesus, his profession alone, right? They, 
They're not okay with that. The, the testimony of Jesus cannot just be floating out there unencumbered. It required cross-examination. He made the claim. Now they're going to interrogate him. They're going to they're take this to the next level with him. He was the one whose new wine outperforms the old wine of the defunct Judaism. He was the new temple who will survive destruction by being raised on the third day, as opposed to the old temple, which was to be left in desolation. He was the one who gives um, living water to thirsty Samaritans. He is the one who gives the gift of Sabbath rest and healing back to man. It was commandeered by the leaders, right? The, woman who was, the man who was told to take up your mat and walk by the, by the pool there. He, Jesus is the one who is the actual manna in the wilderness, who feeds people, who gives sustenance to, to hungry um, people without hope. Who is he? By what authority? Well, to ask the question is, of course, to answer it. Now, as light of the world, here's how we should take that. As light of the world, Jesus is now summoning Israel as this great pillar of fire in the wilderness to follow him back out of Egypt into this brand new exodus. That's essentially what Jesus is claiming here. The, the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, led the Israelites through the wilderness. And Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. He gives life. He is telling them to get out of Sodom, get out of, of Egypt. Um, Jerusalem had, had become so dilapidated. It was this ramshackle. Uh, the leaders were essentially Pharaoh again. It's, re, it's Egypt in reverse. Um, apostasy is rampant. Ty tyranny is the status quo. And essentially, Jesus now is the new Moses. He's the new Moses who is now here. The exodus, this great grand exodus that makes the other exodus look like you know, a, a children's toy. This is now the, the giant new exodus. It's here. And, and, and if only they would come. So that's how we should read the statement that Jesus is light of the world. Of course, the religious leaders, they don't think they're enslaved in Egypt. They don't believe that at all. They don't believe that Jerusalem is so bad that it's now Sodom and Babylon. You, John's revelation, the book of Revelation, he basically calls Jerusalem those things. It had become Babylon. It had become Sodom. It had turned into the very thing that they had hated in their own history. So instead of all this, they don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to follow the new Moses. So they seek to discredit Jesus in verse 13. They essentially say, your testimony is not true. Your testimony is not true because you don't have two or three witnesses. They're trying to discredit him. Jesus affirms that it is true, though, because not only does he give this personal witness of himself through his own works, Jesus says his father his father gives witness through what Jesus has done. And in verse 15, the problem is, of course, they, they, they judge according to the flesh. They, they judge according to the, to the sinful standard of what it means to be an Adam, this cursed, sin-plagued human race. Judgment was not the sole purpose from John 3 of his first coming. It was not the sole purpose of his coming. Salvation of the world, redemption for the world, that was. However, in verse 16, he does render judgment according to his father's will. Now, <clears throat> because he invokes his father, we need to think about that a little bit. He, he invokes the father. Now we have a whole other issue. <laughs> who, who is your father? Our father's Abraham. We'll, we'll get to that. And that's where the, the whole thing changes. 
They want to know something, though. The discussion shifts. Where is your father? Verse 19. Jesus, however, of course, won't play their game. He doesn't play by their rules. They don't know the father, he says, because they don't know the son. So to prove the point, Jesus says he's going to go back to the father and they cannot come to him. Why? Why can't they come? Because they are from below, right? They are from this world. They are of this world. Jesus is, is from above. He's of heavenly origin. He's not of this world. The same thing we get in uh, later in John, I believe it's chapter 18 with, with Pilate and the kingdom. Him, his kingdom, not, or excuse me, chapter um, 16, not of this world. So they are in Adam. In verse 23, he is now King Adam II. They're in Adam, he's King Adam II. And as a result of this distinction now, they're going to perish in their sins, verse 24. Now, I want to say something real quick as we work our way through this. When Jesus says that they're going to perish in their sins, what we sort of think like, oh, they're going to die and go to hell forever. Well, yes, but that's, I don't think that's primarily what Jesus has in mind. I think what he's getting at is the fact that Rome is going to squash them. <laughs> he knows that. The, and everybody knows it. There's been tension. There's been civil war in the Roman Empire. There's been hostility between the Jews and the Romans already several times over, even before Jesus' public ministry. So th it's already a hotbed of political anarchy. It's, it's a disaster. So I think Jesus is giving them a hint. You will actually perish in your sins. Sanctions from God will rush down like lava bursting forth from a, a volcano. And you will literally die in your sins. And Jesus is offering Israel, of course, one last opportunity to repent, to trust him, to, to follow him. And escape the grim fate that will otherwise be imposed upon them. When millions of Jewish people are destroyed at the hands of Rome. So the message is this, follow the new Moses and be rescued. Follow, that's, I mean, we, we, that's our message too. Follow the new Moses and be rescued. Of course, they ask again in verse 25, who are you? Tell us your identity. He's told them several times over, even earlier in the passages in the book of John, but they won't hear it. Jesus only speaks, he only speaks what the Father says, but they don't know it. They can't know it. They lack proper judgment because they lack the Spirit of God. They're blind. They can't, that they can't see. And they lack the Spirit of God, of course, because they prefer their sin instead of repentance. Now look at verse 28. Jesus clarifies in verse 28 that when the Son of Man is lifted up, that is, when He is revealed and glorified as the Son of Man, as the Son of God on the cross... That's the hour that's not yet come repeatedly. They will know who he is. His revelation won't be hidden from them. His, his resurrection to follow will be a vindication message. Man, this guy was right. He's alive. And that's what Paul picks up in, in the letter to Timothy, that essentially the resurrection was um, the justification of God. He was vindicated. The Father vindicated the Son by raising him up. And while they don't believe it, verse 30 says some will believe it. Some do believe it. Now, this is where it gets interesting. There's a shift in the narrative. Jesus then turns his attention to those who are there who do believe. Remember the context. Feast of Tabernacles. It's a festival. Lots of people. Lots of activity. 
not quite as well attended as Passover, but still Jerusalem is full of people. And there are many people there listening to this, this, um, this exchange. He says in verse 31, if you continue, note this, I want you to see the words. If you continue in my word, then what? You are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth makes you free. What in the world is that all about? What are the implications of this type of claim? Well, the leaders are slaves to sin. That's what he's saying. If you don't come to me as Moses leading you out, you're just proving the fact that you're slaves to sin. More on that in a moment. And the discussion then ensues even further. They reason, well, you talk about freedom. You want to bring up the concept of freedom. Well, let's talk about freedom. Guess what? We are Abraham's descendants. And we've never been enslaved. Why would you suggest that we need to be free? We're not slaves. Well, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He says in verse 34, whoever commits a sin reveals that he is a slave of sin. Slaves are slaves, sons are free. There's this discussion about slaves and sons. Slaves can have their status changed. Sons don't. Their, their sonship is secure. Now, the problem is... <laughs> Abraham might be their father in terms of biology and, and generation, but covenant theology, when we think about covenant theology, covenant theology is not based on biology, it's based on oath. That's why there's this subtle, um, you, you probably saw the news with the shooting in New Zealand and just the, the, the disaster that is, and then the manifesto that this young man, this white supremacist essentially wrote, there's, there's, there's so much wrong thinking about man, about covenant, and all of it's erroneous because we, we always think in terms of biological markers. <laughs> we, we think of like blood only. And there's all these wacky theological things that are out there. But, but covenant theology is not based on blood. It's based on, on oath, um, Christianity is a religion of faith. It's a creedal faith. It's not a, um, a religion of you know, this tribe, this tribe, that tribe. We're all in the family of God now. So the issue, though, with their oath is they do not do the works of Abraham, Jesus says in verse 39, which means that if you don't do the works of Abraham, guess what? You don't possess the faith of Abraham, and if you don't possess the faith of Abraham, you don't know God. See, they claim to be covenantally tied to Abraham, but their actions say otherwise. Now, there's, there's, a moral, there's a moral component to the covenant, one which would essentially, one, one which their oath would prove their standing, and it's centered on, on Jesus. Will they repent and trust Christ? That's the issue. And thus they'll inherit eternal life. Or will they reject them? That's the issue. What are they going to do with Jesus? And instead of confessing their sin and trusting Christ, the Lamb who takes away all the sin, they trust themselves and they basically prove that the only oath that they've made, the only oath that they can prove, look at verse 44, is that their father's the devil. Their father's the devil. See, Jesus speaks the truth, they won't hear it. The devil speaks lies and this is what they choose to believe. We know in verse 46, is Jesus a sinner? No. How could you charge him with sin? Verse 47 says, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. More on that in a minute. 
Of course, this is unacceptable to them. Jesus must be then this half-breed Samaritan. He must be out of his mind. Or he must have a demon, of course. That's, you know, if you can't win the argument, call him demon-possessed, right? Verse 48. But Jesus doesn't have a demon. Why? He doesn't glorify himself. Demons glorify themselves. He doesn't glorify himself. The fathers glorify him. His father, rather, glorifies him. And if they're going to keep his word, they're going to live. But not only, not only, listen, not only is Jesus Abraham's son, Abraham looked forward to the day. He looked ahead to the day of Christ, verse 56. Now what does that mean? Here's what I think. It's a theory. I might be wrong. See, Abraham, when you go back to the story of Abraham, Abraham trusted God's promise, right? And uh, Genesis 22, he takes Isaac up to the mountain. There's this great display of faith. He's about ready to sacrifice Isaac. God stops him. There's a substitute. A ram comes from the bush. And, and he says, well, God will, God will provide the sacrifice. Huge overtones of Christ, right? So, but Abraham, he, um, he was righteous by the fact that he trusted God. He, by faith, he proceeded to, in obedience to God. He was counted righteous. This is, Paul picks this up in Romans. But Abraham trusted God to the point of seeing a day in the future, looking ahead in hope to the day of, of Jesus when he would bring the promise to fruition. I think that's what he's getting at. Abraham believed God. The nations were to be blessed. Abraham looked forward in faith, trusting that God would do it. And Jesus is making a ridiculously exclusive claim here. And he says, that's now. I'm the one that's going to bless the nations. You're not Abraham's kids. You're the devil's kids. Because you don't have the faith of Abraham. You don't do the works of Abraham. Thus proving your oath. Your oath is with Satan, not God. That's the reality of the situation. But Jesus isn't just Abraham's son. He's greater than Abraham. He is Abraham's God, the great I am, he says in verse 58. And this last statement inexorably pushed the leaders over the proverbial edge. Jesus must die. Why? He's a blaspheming demon. That's what they say. Now, there's so much here. Jordan, you mentioned it's a dense passage. You were right. It's very, very dense. And I, and I labored over this this week thinking, what do we do with this? There's so much to do. So here's just a few things. At the core of the passage, there's this issue of knowledge. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows who they are, the religious leaders. Interestingly enough, they don't know who he is, and they don't know who they are. He knows who he is. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. They don't know who they are. This is like this knowledge, mysterious thing. They don't know. They have no idea. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think this is more than just about communicating facts. Jesus gives them the facts. He tells them who he is, but they don't believe. And the question is why? Well, here's, here's what I'm thinking as, as I toyed with this this week. Knowledge is intimately connected to us. Not, in, in other words, it's not as though knowledge is just floating outside there and we just have to get a bucket and go get it. It's not, it's not detached purely. Um, knowledge is connected to our person, who we are. We, we have to apprehend things by, by faith. 
So which means that, you know, the existentialists are, are wrong. In Christ, there's no dialectical tensions in the world. Everything's resolved in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not, it's not this, um, you know, you think of Sartre and all the, all the other humanists of closer to our day. This, there's not this tension where, you know, reality is out there, and then I have my own rationalization in my head, and what comes first, and how do we resolve this great, problem of philosophy. There's really no, there's none of that in, in the gospel. There's none of that in Christ. In other words, here, to bring it down practically, you can know that you can know. You can know that you know. The leaders didn't know. <laughs> they had no idea. And there's a problem with that. And that's because how we know things is also an ethical consideration. We know, how we know things is rooted in who we are, like our identity. Um, the leaders rejected Jesus altogether because they hated Jesus. They, they hated him. They, were, uh, they felt like he was a threat to them. There's this, this ethical hatred which led to this conscious objection of him, essentially. So they don't know Jesus because they don't know the Father. They don't know the Father because they don't know Jesus. It's this huge problem. Uh, total depravity. A thoroughly reformed doctrine to which we say amen. That doesn't mean that men do not know things about the universe. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's nothing that we could potentially learn from, from people at odds with Christ, in other words. Rather, it means that apart from Christ, they possess true justifiable knowledge of Christ. In other words... To truly know revelation, you have to know the revealer. We're not arguing, you know, with, with people at the colleges and, you know, people that you talk to, friends, family, whoever it is. We're not arguing that they're stupid and don't know things. We're arguing that they're taking from us. They're borrowing our stuff and they're making a mess of things, essentially. See, here's an important application as I was thinking about this. Unbelief finds no respite except in the humble reception of the divine logos. Unbelief has no rest anywhere, and nor should we think we can give people rest apart from Christ, apart from embracing the gospel, apart from, apart from this self-emptying logos, the, the, the word, Jesus. No one stuck in unbelief has a place to lay their weary philosophies. They're constantly at odds with Christ. They're constantly at odds with him. And, and no one has a place to lay it down. And the only thing that unbelief produces is more unbelief. And that pile of garbage just sits there and awaits judgment, right? But, but they want to know who Jesus is. But excuse the movie reference. They can't handle the truth. <laughs> Why? Why can't they handle the truth? Well, because the truth about God... Listen, the truth about God is utterly debilitating. The truth about God is utterly debilitating. And that's why you need a new heart filled with the Spirit of God to house the truth. Because it's debilitating. Now, we know from the prologue earlier on in John that Jesus is the covenant Lord. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the decreer of all things. He's the governor of all things. All government lays on his shoulder, Isaiah tells us. So laws of logic, faith, um, glory, immutability, all of it sits on the shoulders of Christ. 
uh, and he upholds the entire thing. And we see here in verse 24 this confession. Look at the text. Who is, is Jesus? Who are you? He says, I am he. Or I am. Actually, the word he isn't even in the Greek text. I am. And he says it later again, before Abraham was, I am. Christ's authority, right? Christ's authority is tied to his sovereign identity. It's all rooted in him. Jesus is I am, which means that, listen, Jesus is, he is well beyond the dictionary. He's well beyond the dictionary. Nothing defines God but God. That's what the I am means. You don't appeal to the dictionary to, to define the author of the dictionary. See, Jesus, Jesus cannot be held down to, to meaning in the world because meaning only exists because Jesus imputes the meaning. He only gives meaning. Which also means that the gospel doesn't need our corroboration. The gospel doesn't need man's corroboration. That's what the leaders wanted, right? They wanted corroborating evidence, but there, there simply wouldn't be enough evidentialist arguments to win them over. We were yesterday at at the baptism uh, at the Planned Parenthood there in D.C. And, you know, there's this weird contrast of this glorious picture of God's covenant in this child, and there's beauty in it. And, and there were um, a lot of pastor buyers who just, you know, mocked, applauded, you know, yay, we love you, thanks for wearing the orange vest and helping people with women, you know, in healthcare and, and applauding them. And, and it's, it's one of those things where, like, I mean, you've probably had those conversations. You, you don't slam dunk people with argumentation as if that's the thing that's going to win them over. And, and you can try. I mean, we do that. It doesn't mean you don't argue things. We don't debate and whatnot. But ultimately, we're not trying to, to win the argument. We're trying to win people. And unless the Spirit of God changes the person's heart, unless we are clear on the gospel and clear on what we proclaim, there's, there's no... There's no winning them. We don't win them anyway. And that's because the gospel doesn't need man's approval. It doesn't need your approval. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't need my approval. It doesn't need man's approval or corroboration. That's the issue here in the text. But we, shouldn't, we should expect, though, this type of behavior from the unbelieving world. It's not good news when you're blind and deaf and dumb, right? It's not good news. It's not a great rescue operation, which is what Jesus is saying. It's not a great rescue operation when you don't believe yourself to be in need of rescue. And all of you, you didn't, you didn't come to Christ because you thought, great, I can add him to the shelf. <laughs> he is the shelf. See, for men who are bent on their own sovereignty, it only all this does, all the gospel does, all it does is, is basically appears like it's a threat to another rival kingdom that's come. And that's why the church hasn't made much advancement, because we haven't treated the gospel like it truly is, an actual threat. It's a threat. And we, we like to package it up and, oh, this is, this is nice and God loves you and wants you to have a wonderful time in your life. We don't treat it like the threat that it is. If we are serious about Christ's kingdom, it's a threat to the kingdoms of man. And we should treat it as such. It's always a threat to man's kingdom. This is why, in, this is why sovereignty, 
the issue of God's sovereignty in our preaching, in our evangelism, in raising our children, in educating them, in building a social order, in all these things that we are trying to do here, that's why we have to keep at the forefront the sovereignty of the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. That's the issue. That's why the first point of the covenant is transcendence. It starts with God. And when we get that straight and we start to live our lives and teach our children and function in society, that's a glorious movement of the kingdom. See, by asking who Jesus is, after hearing about it several times over, the leaders sealed their, in their own doomed fate. See, for them, and for many today, many have family that God is basically reduced down to this utilitarian idea. God's reduced to, in other words, you know, God is, is fun to consider, and if I need him real bad, I'll, I'll maybe talk to him. But it's fun to consider, like, time travel <laughs> or space travel. But this sort of flippant dismissal leads to immorality. It leads to cultural decay. decay and, and, and the church has basically done it all to for, you know, help that happen. We've assisted the whole process. So man takes the throne. The world runs headlong into uninhibited lusts. That's what happens. You know, when, when men throw Christ off the throne or try to throw him off the throne, they immediately they submit their resume for the job. It doesn't go empty. They want it. See, this whole issue is a clash of sovereignty, authority, and identity. But they're deaf. The text says in verse 43, notice what Jesus says in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Why not? It's clear. It's because you cannot hear my word. You should underline here. People can't hear because they don't believe. The, the Logos, this divine word, is unable to be heard by unredeemed ears. We talk about the gospel giving you a new heart. The gospel gives you new ears so that you can hear correctly. See, Jesus Christ is the true source and center of all that exists in the world. And in order to hear, one must abandon this whole enterprise of understanding, discovering, and managing the world on the basis of a man-centered pride. If, truly, if Jesus is truly the center, we have to abandon all other pursuits of center-finding. They can't hear because they don't believe. They won't believe because they won't repent. For the world, truth is heard as nonsense and gibberish. And Matt, you get it. You stand there and you talk to people and it's like you are speaking a foreign language. It feels like that a lot. You know, sir, you're wearing a death score outfit in front of, you know, Molech's temple. Um, you should repent and believe the gospel. And then often, oftentimes I'll say to him, but you can't do that. You should ask me how. You know, you try to get him this, to talk. And, but they need, they need a, the spirit. They need a, the spirit of God to change them. And all this, it's, truth is, you know, nonsense is gibberish to the world. It's a foreign language. Life is perceived as death. Good is evil. Evil is good. This is reversal. But apart from regeneration, man is completely and utterly unable to apprehend the divine logos. And yet, despite this obstacle, what does God call you to do tomorrow? What does he call you to do? Despite this great obstacle of God's sovereignty in the world and our what does he call you to do? He calls you to preach. He calls you to teach. He calls you to rest in him. He calls you, parents, tomorrow morning to, to you know, get your kids breakfast without grumbling because it's Monday. 
And Crossing Crowners like to party all night, Sunday night, and his right Aaron Monday's rough. It's tough. That's, that's our calling. We're called to build. We're called to, to teach. We're called to preach. Regardless of the fact that the world can't hear. It's this amazing paradox. God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, go and preach. And he's like, all right. But no, and God says, they're not going to hear. They won't listen to you. You may, get, you, you may die, but do it anyway. That's faithfulness. And I think the part of the reason of that is because if God were to say, you should preach because when people will believe because you're articulate and, and you're smart and eloquent, what, do you think we're going to preach God or us? <laughs> See, God has tasked each of us, mothers, children, listen, you have been tasked with heralding the life-giving news of the gospel of the kingdom in every area of life. I don't care if you're two or three years old. That's your task. And you need to know that now. Some of you seven-year-olds, your task is to herald the life-giving news of the gospel. Your task is to love the gospel and to teach the gospel. And when your brother's fighting with you, you tell him the gospel. See, a part, part of our message, and we'll just sort of land here in a minute, part of our message is rooted in what Jesus brings up in verses 31 and 32. I want you to look at that again. Freedom. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Follow the logic. One, we continue in the word of Christ, which proves what? That we're his disciples. That's our status. We're discipleship. Two, when that happens, we come to know the truth, which is sort of backwards in our discipleship model, by the way. We think if we just give enough truth, then it'll work itself out. And then we have to clean things up later. And then third, the truth sets you free. What does this mean? Here's what I think. What Jesus makes plain is the fact that there's no freedom outside of Christ. It's an intolerant thing to say. Men will try to ground truth and freedom in something like reason or agnosticism. This scapegoat straw men, they concoct this thing to alleviate their sin-sick soul. That's what they do. But, but this person is only a slave sitting on death row, a slave to sin. He's awaiting this divine sentence. So, so all efforts, we need to be clear on this, all efforts at finding this freedom apart from God and his word are basically gradual movements toward the penalty of death. It's a reverse sanctification. <coughs> finding it in trinkets and all these fun things. We're free in Christ, but all the unregenerate person knows is that, which is why freedom, listen, freedom has to be extra nos, extra nos, and it's this phrase out of us. It has to be outside of us. None of us are going to look for freedom inside of us. We don't have it. Christ has it, though. And there's no possible freedom that man can come up with on his own. Why? Because he's a slave to sin. That's his status. The man who cannot, the man who cannot receive the freedom of Christ offers his, all he can offer is this delusional thing, this delusional worldview that he thinks he's free, but he's not free. He's in bondage. He's a slave to sin and his own erroneous desires. 
But that's what it means to be in Adam, rebellious and delusional, dead, without life. See, these men who see themselves as sovereign are men who think that they have the corner of the religious market, but they own nothing, they're dead. And that's why, we got to talk about Abraham real quick, that's why Abraham is brought up in the conversation. They are Abraham's descendants, yes, Jesus doesn't necessarily argue that. They're his physical descendants, but guess what? They are destitute descendants. They're apostates of the covenant. Their father is the father of lies. Israel was called several times over in Isaiah, several times, to be a light into the nation. But instead, they traded that calling and vocation for a share in the darkness. And only Christ the light, that's what ties this together. Only Christ the light illuminates the darkness. You see, um, Jesus, Jesus is the greater Isaac. He's the greater Isaac to whom Abraham looked to. He's not Ishmael. He's the son of God who offers sonship to man. He brings man out of slavery and into the family of God. And we can either be heirs of the covenant or we can be heirs of God's judgment. But heirs we are and heirs we will be. And the only way, the only way Jesus brings us sonship and adoption is by being the faithful son, carrying the wood up the mountain on his back in honor of his father. See, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus he didn't treat the religious leaders with a false sense of neutrality. He says exactly what is happening. You people, you have glorified yourself. That's what you've done. This great human sin of self-glory. Doing it all in the name of God. And because of this, it's blinded them in seeing who Jesus really is and thus seeing the Father. See, Jesus always gives true testimony. Their, their actions condemn them. But Jesus... Jesus doesn't get into all these, you know, mind, um, small points of, you know, these, these points of consideration. You know, what do you think about this little thing and this little thing? He doesn't get into those things. In covenant theology, it's very basic. R relationship is proved not by words only, but by action. Oaths are taken. And covenants renewed, ethics are all in, involved in this. It's tied to your character. A man's character reveals his morality. It's this principle of judging a tree by its fruit. But in the end, and we'll close here, in the end, they want Jesus dead. They want him dead. And this is the same problem we face in the church, the same problem we face in the world. Men will go at great lengths to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but Christ will not be silent. He will not be silenced. The tomb since empty to this day, and Christ has been established as Lord, which means you too, church, must not be silent. Following Christ, who leads us as light of the world into the rest of God's blood-bought territory, as we, we too must go with the authority of his word, secure in our identity as sons and daughters, Friends, you aren't just friends of God, you're family. You're family. And we have to insist on the truth of his liberation and the horrors of slavery to sin. We must be sure of his promises, rest in his promises, and stand firm in the fact that Jesus is the great I am. So tomorrow morning, remember that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Son, um, we rejoice that you, Jesus, are the great I Am, the one from eternity who adopts us into your family and enlists us into your army. 
We ask and pray that your spirit would take the truths of this passage and plant seeds in our hearts and our minds so that, so that we would be equipped for this great task before us. We ask and pray in confidence and in faith in the name of, son, of your son, Jesus, our King and our Lord. Amen.